0: Which anticoagulants can be used safely and effectively treat VTE in patients and obesity? In this episode of Critical Conversations on Venous Thromboembolism, a master class series on DVT and PE, Drs. Cohen and Doddleswig discuss VTE management in patients with obesity and share evidence-based recommendations for optimizing the use of anticoagulants in this prevalent patient population. Access the full series and complete the post-test for credit at peerreview.com forward slash
1: HBR 860. Thanks for joining us for Episode 7. How should VTE be managed in patients with obesity? Well, obesity, as we know, is a modern-day epidemic. It's increasingly common. It's not just in young people. It's in middle-aged people and even elderly patients now. And it brings up the risk of VTE long-term. So let's have a look at our patient case and discuss some of the real-world evidence in patients with obesity. This is Trina. She's 46. She's 112 kilograms. BMI is 35, so she's obese. Got a high creatinine clearance, probably related to her weight. And she's been discharged on warfarin and referred to a hematologist. Initially, she was treated with low weight heparin But she wants to be on a DOAC. And the hospitalist recalls the ISTH guidance from the past that recommend checking DOAC levels. And this is expensive monitoring. And Trina's insurance plan may not cover it. What do we do here? Well, first thing is to think where Trina fits in the spectrum. And Trina is really class 2 or moderate obesity Uh, The initial stage of obesity is with BMI from 30 to 35. But we see all these classes and we see even extreme obesity with BMIs over 60. So which anticoagulants are safest to use in patients with obesity? Steve, we've got a bit of information on this now. Some we've got some data, some we haven't. Tell us what you think.
2: Well, first, I'm really impressed if the hospitalist knew about the ISTH uh, uh, recommendations. I mean, that's really kudos to that individual. Uh, but we know it goes back to 2016 when the IS International Society of Thrombose and Hemostasis from the Scientific Steering Committee really did a great job in putting forth some recommendations. But at that point, it was really BMI up to forty and and um, weight up to one hundred twenty kilograms. So so this uh, patient would fall within that class. But unfortunately, many people looked at that as a line of sand and said if any, if they went even anything above a BMI of forty or one hundred twenty kilograms, they would you know no uh, all bets were off and they we would uh, look for peak and troughs not that anybody knew what to do with them but they would look for peak and troughs at those levels and then they would not prescribe a doac things have changed things have changed uh, that have really been have evolving and, and these days just to just to answer the question um, it would be a picksaban over rivaroxaban uh, for for this weight class of in, of individual but there's been a lot of additional uh, information because what it did do if nothing else It set the stage for people to do further research about the what if they were uh, just obese or morbid obese or or super morbid obese, as you were showing. So I think that's where uh, you know you've done some great work there.
1: Well, it's interesting that there's been an enormous amount of research, as you said, since that recommendation came out. So that was one of the benefits, and we've done a number of studies where. We looked at DOACs and obesity, and we looked at 43,000 patients in the United States with obesity, and we looked at those who are obese and those who are severely obese with BMIs over 40. And what we saw in this is when we compared the DOAC apixaban with warfarin for both safety and effectiveness the point estimates always favoured uh, the DOAC a Pixaban. So, uh, and the, the, you know, many of these patients and many of my patients are up around 200 kilograms and we still manage them with DOACs at this stage. But that was an important bit of real world evidence, I think, that we're able to uh, to publish. Um, but should we adjust the DOACs? Um, I'm not sure we should. I, I don't. I, I tend to use the the higher dose, um, if there's a, a reason, but I don't, I don't tend to adjust down if they're obese because there is a little bit of drop off of the exposure. And can we do this without monitoring? I I think we can, but I want to get your thoughts too, Steve.
2: No, thanks for that, and, and thanks for sharing your your great work there. And um, we use the standard dose, the higher dose, um, and and we exactly. we we utilize excellent, and we utilize without any any adjustment. And we typically um, will have that, maintain that dose. And we do not monitor. Um, we yes. do we do not monitor with anti-10A in general, nor do we monitor, even though we have availability to get the uh, moiety-specific anti-10A. We don't find it necessary. The literature has not um, shown yes. that. And particularly, we reference Ash and Dr. Suker at U- University of Pennsylvania has been really excellent at regard guiding yes. us.
1: Yeah, we're the same. We started measuring because the ISTH said to. What we found was that the peaks and troughs in VTE were pretty much in the right range. I mean, the peaks for rivaroxaban were a bit low, though significantly low in some patients, but all of them were within the therapeutic range of that of over 100 a, a, a nanograms per mil. So we just don't bother. Uh, all our peaks were within the range. We don't bother with uh, measuring those doses. And you you did refer to the updated guidance. And tell us what the guidance says now, Steve, with respect to the 2021 ISTH.
2: Right. So basically, it starts by just reaffirming what the 2016 guideline said as far as using um, uh, standard doses of apixaban and rivaroxaban as being acceptable. But now they move forward and said, they took off the weight capping, so there's no longer a weight capping of the 40 BMI or 140 of the kilograms, and 120 actually, and they, so they move forward and uh, say that, that that's appropriate for, for treatment. They do go further and say whether you use um, uh, for prevention or treatment the bigotran, adoxaban, batrixaban, that, that data is not Sufficient. It's not convincing. The PKPD data does not support using one of those agents, and nor should you look at anti is Exactly what we were sharing a few moments ago. So that would be where we would want people to uh, uh, focus on. And then we we have um, uh, changed a few parameters for Trina. Uh, so we, we she was obese, um, but now she's extremely obese with 100, at one hundred sixty kilograms with a BMI of 62 and has chronic kidney disease, chronic clearance of 80. Uh, Q-treatment was initiated with a, a weight-based uh, low-molecular heparin. Which anticoagulant would uh, I select now um, I, as I, I would follow the guidelines? And ISTH gives us some pretty clear um, support to using apixaban or rivaroxaban um, in that regard, and I would stay at the higher dose. That would be a, my initial um, suggestion. Yeah,
1: same, here. same here. And I wouldn't monitor, like we said, but if she had bariatric surgery, I think during the period she had bariatric surgery, I'd probably switch her over to low molecular weight heparin to cover her because of the absorption problems. But then back on uh, the standard dose of either apixaban or rivaroxaban.
2: Yeah, our approach for that would be if, is similar, is that um, if she's had bariatric surgery we don't consider the DOAC until at least a month after the bariatric procedure, um, and, and, and at that point is when we would um, uh, consider resuming, but we would check a DOAC level, in that, a trough level, to make sure that she's having some degree of absorption. So that really would wrap up our recommendations, uh, Dr. Cohn and I's recommendations for anticoagulant therapy in patients with obesity, common occurrence. And in our next and last episode, the 8th, we'll discuss special considerations for anticoagulant, coagulation therapy in patients with cancer.
0: Yeah, lots of new information, Steve. This activity is certified by PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. Download the slides and practice aids for this episode and others at peerreview.com forward slash HBR 860. Be sure to listen to all eight episodes in this master class series and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HBR 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer Alliance.